Thank you for listening to Australia's number one wine podcast, The Vincast. If you'd like to help support the show, uh, it's really easy. All you need to do is go to the iTunes page for the podcast, subscribe and leave a rating and review. Uh, and if you'd like to win one of the remaining uh, beautiful wine maps of the Yarra Valley wine region from Linus Wilson at Wines and Makers, uh, all you need to do is uh, in your review, make sure you mention which was your favorite episode of the podcast uh, and then send me an email through the intrepidwino.com website uh, mentioning uh, who you are and which was your review uh, and uh, I'll get one sent out to you as soon as possible. Thanks to the people who have already left a review and I do hope you enjoy this week's episode. Episode 103 of the Vincast, I chat with Jane Thompson, creator of the Fabulous Ladies Wine Society and also the Australian Women in Wine Awards. Hello there, Vincasters. Welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gasbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And as always, it is great to have you on board. Uh, I'd love to share some very exciting news. Um, I've been named the Australian Alternative Varieties Wine Show Fellow for 2016. Uh, I'm very honoured and humbled uh, to be chosen uh, to go up to Mildura the first week of November and get a look behind the scenes of uh, a wine show that really is designed to promote and educate uh, about alternative varieties in Australia and also uh, you know, create a forum uh, to uh, discuss and also look at wines made from a all those cool varieties already in Australia. Uh, I'm so excited to to get a chance to taste and meet people. Uh, no doubt I'll be recording a number of episodes of the podcast while I'm there. And also um, I'm hoping to create some fantastic video content, which I'll be sharing on my YouTube channel, uh, Intrepid Wino. So please uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, let me know if you'd uh, like to ask any questions about it. Uh, and uh, you know, thank you for everyone who uh, has supported me. For this week's episode of the Vincast, I'm really excited to introduce you to Jane Thompson, who, as I mentioned earlier, was the founder of the Fabulous Ladies Wine Society, uh, which is designed to um, promote and educate wines to female wine consumers in a really fun, relaxed kind of way. Uh, It's working really, really hard. They have fantastic events, Um, but more recently, she's become a really big campaigner for uh, more women involved in the wine industry Uh, and it was really interesting to chat with her about her background and uh, and why she wanted to get so involved with the creation of uh, the Women in Wine Awards which really uh, highlights champions uh, some of the uh, the fabulous female uh, winemakers wine marketers uh, in Australia so hope you enjoyed the episode please do stick around to find out how you can uh, get in contact with us Uh, but until then I'll see you on the other side Jane thank you for joining me this evening uh, via Skype Uh, where are you joining me from this evening if you don't mind me asking Sure, James. I'm actually lucky enough to live in the Byron Bay hinterland. So, you know, somebody has to. Lovely, lovely. Um, but uh, thank you for, for making some time to be on the Vincast and welcome. Uh, I'm not sure if you um, know, but I, I typically start every episode of my podcast asking my guests if they can remember um, a, a particular interaction with wine that made them think about it in a different way and led them on a path to, uh, to wine uh, passion and a career. Okay. Um, that's a great question to start with. <laughs> Um, I think that it was not necessarily a wine but a person with a wine that uh, had the biggest impact on where I happen to be now and it was around about four years ago when I was trying to desperately explain to one of my very best girlfriends why it was okay to drink Chardonnay 
and why the reason she didn't like Chardonnay was simply because she had been ruined by drinking really bad cask Chardonnay during our uni years. And it was that discussion and my ability to, and I have to say I was quite pleased with myself, to convince her by the end of that conversation to try a a glass of Chardonnay from a bottle I'd just opened and her then trying it and agreeing with me that this was a Chardonnay that she both liked and would drink more of that made me think, aha, (laughs) this is something I want to be doing far more of. I see. I find that that's probably the most dangerous thing that can happen to someone who's just starting to drink and enjoy wine and wanting to learn more is that they taste a wine or they're told that, oh, this is what Chardonnay tastes like. And then they drink a Chardonnay that they don't like and they think, oh, if all Chardonnay is like this, then I don't like Chardonnay. And they don't realize that there's so many different variables that influence the character of a Chardonnay so that they just need to find out, well, what is it about, what was it about that Chardonnay that I didn't like and how can I find Chardonnays that aren't like that? I know. It's a little bit like saying, look, I just don't like oil paintings isn't it? Without fully understanding the the breadth and the depth of the options available when it comes to artistic work using oil paintings. Exactly. So um, you you, you talked about um, like studying. What what, what did you study when you um, finished? Let's go back a bit further. Uh, Where are you from originally? I grew up in Sydney and uh, I've been living up here in the Byron area for around about 12 years. I first started, I studied to be an organisational psychologist specialising in communications and psycholinguistics. So you can imagine that the path to wine was not a straight one. (laughs) Um, Maybe, I don't know. (laughs) The communication side, of course, is uh, far more obvious, but um, Uh, The other thing is that my father got into wine in a big way. Well, he was always into wine as far as I can remember as a consumer, but then became owner and producer um, in the Hunter Valley when I was around about 15 years old. And that had a a very significant impact on on me and uh, watching that unfold and watching what he got up to and being a small, very small part of that was a huge influence at, I guess, what some would say is a rather influential time in your life. So how old were you when you made the, the, the move to the Hunter Valley? I never moved there, so my parents were divorced. Oh, okay. um, yeah, but was certainly still a very big influence. Right. Um, and was wine consumed at home? Like were, were you exposed to it at all, um, you know, in, in home life? Was wine yeah. something that was enjoyed by the family? Uh, Yeah, very much so. Mostly by my father, whom was, I think, I believe, an original member of the Wine Society when it first started a few decades ago. Um, And, um, you know, there was always wine in the house. So I always remember, you know, boxes of wine being stacked up in the garage. And I remember one time being picked up from something and struggling to get the car into the garage (laughs) because there were so many boxes in the way. Mm. Like playing Tetris. Exactly. <laughs> so for the the listeners who may not be uh, uh, familiar with the Wine Society, possibly some of the younger listeners, what what is the Wine Society? Uh, well, I don't know particularly in terms of um, huge amounts of detail, only that it's one of Australia's oldest and most prestigious wine clubs uh, and one that my my father was certainly very active in for many years. Um, and a, a, a dozen bottles of wine would show up regularly from the Wine Society with a chosen selection inside. And I think it was almost for him like opening a gift box every time. Yeah, I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, so what would... What, what brought him to the Hunter Valley? Like why was he inspired to sort of start making his own wine? Um, well, I don't know the full story of, of his inner mind at that when I was that age, but I do know that he'd always had that joy and love of wine and wanted to pursue that passion and so did it on a very, very small scale. Uh, certainly never quit his day job, but I think got a lot of um, – lot of satisfaction from from starting his own uh, vi- uh, label from his small vineyards. Yeah, okay. Uh, and so what was it that you uh, – what, what uh, inspired you to follow the uh, study path that you chose? 
Um, well, I guess a love of communication and language is something that I'd always had. I certainly excelled in that area um, academically at school, but didn't see myself pursuing um, a literary or creative writing kind of role. Um, and the opportunity to study psychology at uni was ac- quite accidental. It was just one that um, I had a little bit of interest in, kind of put in an application for, was given um, the opportunity to enrol you know, at a very good um, university, University of New South Wales, and thought that that was probably my best opportunity and absolutely enjoyed it from day one. And then when doing my thesis, was able to specialise in that area of psycholinguistics, which is the way the brain uses and processes and understands language and its interaction with your emotions. It's Mm. very fascinating stuff. And behaviour, of course, it's interaction with your emotions and behaviour. So was there any part of that that was sort of looking at, um, you know, like subjectivity as far as communication and, and, and different interpretations? Absolutely, because when you approach any kind of communication, you're bringing everything about you to that discourse. So all your your worldview, your mood, your emotional state, what happened to you five minutes ago, um, how busy your brain is that day. Uh, so much goes into each piece of communication, whether that's written or spoken. And um, I often say that misunderstanding underpins every problem that we have in the world. <laughs> and understanding what goes into communication just gives you a small idea of how easy those misunderstandings are to happen yeah absolutely i mean it's it's similar to what we were talking about before as far as people misunderstanding what what a particular grape variety or a a white wine or red wine or what what's dry what's sweet initially you know they misunderstand and they potentially risk missing out on a, a lot of opportunities to 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 find wines that they would enjoy because they have preconceived ideas about what all wines of that style are exactly or you know what you say is sweet is not it p- perhaps not anywhere near what i would think is sweet yeah. or vice versa and so yeah subjectivity our, our language and our words are absolutely fully loaded to the brim with interpretation and subjectivity absolutely um when, when you were studying and in, in your you know early 20s i guess did you start to drink wine and was it uh, something you were interested in or was it just like a, a social thing uh, yes, I, I did start to drink wine. I think like lots of people, it was whatever was the cheapest <laughs> and <laughs> uh, was pretty much the guiding light as to what was selected. But it certainly didn't become an interest until a full interest until probably my late 20s, early 30s, when again, the opportunity to experience and experiment with wines that are higher quality, usually a higher price point, um, And, you know, you can sort of indulge that interest a little bit more. What was it that uh, that led you to that opportunity? Uh, well, I think having been further along in my career, I was able to have money. <laughs> right, of course. Um, yeah, rather than living day to day on um, university part time wages at you know my local shop. So um, I think that. A lot of people say that, um, you know, often people don't come into wine until their late 20s and early 30s. I believe that that's simply a product of um, the ability to indulge your interests, whatever they might be. Yeah. So that even if you are a consumer of wine in your early 20s or, you know, maybe even in your late teens, um, (laughs) you aren't necessarily able to afford the opportunities to explore different wine regions, wine varieties, wine styles. Um, purely because of financial reasons. I think so, but I don't think that's just limited to wine. I think that that um, you know, if you've got an interest in something, you are always or very often, I should say, limited by the resources available to you. Yeah. Um, did you have any opportunity to to travel in your twenties overseas? Yes, very much so. So um, I spent uh, six months, took time out and spe- of my career actually and spent six months travelling with the man who is my husband <laughs> and, um, yeah, we took our time to sort of meander through Europe and that certainly helped to um, 
allow me to explore and become more familiar with international European wine varieties and styles. Um, and it gave me the time as well, of course, to explore and enjoy and taste and learn. So that's something I'm very, very grateful for, that opportunity. Mm. Uh, so as you started to explore more wines, was it was this like a, a social thing as well? Were you around other people who were also interested in wine? Did that kind of fuel your interest in, in learning a bit more about wine? I would have to say no to that question, actually. It was something that um, with the with the um, the caveat that my husband was the was the other one. So the two of us together were a bit of a, a secret society where we would we would help each other and encourage each other to explore. But I certainly wasn't seeing the same kind of interest in the group of friends that we were hanging out with. Um, but um, yeah, it was it was something that the two of us I think got into. Did you find yourself bringing bottles of wine or nice bottles of wine that you found particularly interesting to dinner parties and and you would hope that someone would say, oh, wow, tell us about this, Jane. This is like, oh, I've never tried a wine like this. They ended up just sort of saying, oh, that's very nice and then you know, conversation would go to something else. Oh, totally. Don't we all hope <laughs> for those moments? Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, sometimes the inverse of that where my husband and I would argue at home about whether it was worth taking that particular bottle of wine to people who may or may not appreciate it you know that really terribly horribly snobby stage that you go through yeah absolutely oh to be honest i'd still have that conversation at home but just don't tell my my girlfriend that (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and so at, at this time where where was your career heading what were you actually doing so by the time I was in my late 20s, um, I'd actually moved up to Byron to where I am now, So, um, which will give you an idea of what I'm about to turn in a couple of weeks. And, um, and I just had my first baby. So um, I, I, wine took a bit of a back burner actually after the birth of my first child because uh, there wasn't much time or chance to, to explore it or indulge in that um, interest. And as well, uh, again, uh, we were back to kind of living on one income, which is something I think lots of people with young kids experience again. It's almost like reliving some of those early uni days where that frugal, those frugal talents you learnt so well become very handy once again. Yeah, it's um, a reprioritization of, of your yeah. finances. Exactly, exactly. So that's what was happening then. But all I mean, we've always, even throughout all of those different periods of life, um, we've always kind of had wine at the dinner table. Um, again, it's the it's the um, the level of those wines, the quality of those wines, and the ver- variability of those wines that has perhaps been the biggest. Um, uh, roller coaster, uh, but certainly the presence of wine has always been quite stable. Was there any particular thing that actually brought you guys to uh, the Byron area? Yes, so my husband grew up on the fa- the farm that we live on. Right. Okay. What sort of farm is it? Uh, we've got a hundred acres, and it we have pecans. We grow organic pecan pecan nuts, and we run organic beef cattle. Oh wow. There you go. Okay. It's not, it's not a particularly good uh, uh, wine-growing country by any chance, is it? Absolutely not, which makes me very <laughs> <laughs> very unbiased, of course. Right. Okay. Um, and But, but before, uh, before the, um, the, the first baby arrived, what, what were you doing for work? Um, I well, first of all, I was work, working as an organisational psychologist in Sydney, and then after the travel stint that I just mentioned, when I took some time out, I was actually quite inspired to move um, into the food and wine arena, um, and I actually opened one of the Hunter Valley's first ever cooking schools back in two thousand, and we taught pasta making in the cellar door of Sandalin Estate, which is in the Lovedale district. Oh, okay. So where where did the um the love of cooking come from? Uh well, again, food and wine are such a hand in hand marriage, aren't they? And mm. it was through our travel adventures that we would just keep going on these amazing uh, food and wine schools or little cooking programs, you know, half days, full days, here, there, and everywhere. And coming back to Australia, having had that lovely break and 
you know, I guess wanting it to continue, I suddenly realised that there was perhaps an opportunity to introduce some of that into the Hunter Valley, which was already such a tourism mecca, mm. but didn't offer those little easy to experience food or cooking um, uh, experiences. When you were there tasting wine, if you're there for a couple of days, you don't necessarily want to be hopping from cellar door to cellar door the entire time. And so coming to a cooking school for just a few hours, still within a cellar door experience and learning something new, having a beautiful meal, meeting some lovely people, it became a really popular thing for people to do. I think that's one of the big draw cards of the the Pizzini family in the King Valley, you know, because... uh, Katrina d- does cooking cooking classes there, and everyone loves learning, you know, about Italian cooking up there. So I'm I'm sure it would have been so successful in the Hunter Valley. Yeah, and it was lovely. I mean, ironically, I'm a blonde white chick teaching people um, pasta making, so there were some questions around that. But it, at the time, it was so so new and so different that um, people quickly got over that and had a fantastic time. You know, I think it brought out the Italian in all of us. Did you also uh, like appreciate the opportunity to engage with people who were coming as potentially wine tourists to the Hunter Valley and engaging with them and finding out what kind of experiences that they were they were interested in, what they enjoyed, and and, and also find out more about them as wine consumers? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, part of the class, of course, was we would be tasting wines from the cellar that we operated within, sort of getting down to the nitty gritty reasons of of personal taste and, and I, you know, subjective understanding of different wines. I mean, I love talking to people and uh, I meeting, you know, a new group of 12 people every week or who already had a food and wine interest was just heaven for me. And in this period, were you doing any writing of your own? Were you like taking advantage of that kind of communication form? Not as much, no. Uh, I mean, I would be writing different blog posts for our website yeah. and um, different media releases. We got some fantastic media coverage for the business, which was loads of fun, including we actually got a stint on the Qantas in-flight loop for a while, which was marvellous. Um, and, you know, things like that were fun and great, but it wasn't um, it wasn't sort of regular writing. Mm. So uh, once you were... Um you know, family entrenched in in Byron, and and you know, uh, children had uh, had well and truly arrived. How how did you then start to steer back towards, um, you know, the the sphere of wine and and communication? Sure. Well, I mentioned to start the interview that I had that very significant conversation with my Chardonnay loving girlfriend. And um, as in addition to that, I had realised that I was regularly having interesting wine conversations with people and how much I enjoyed doing that. Um, and I, like so many things in life, had an idea, but it was only when I had an opportunity to test that idea that the fabulous ladies wine society was born. So I took my love of talking to people about wine in a fresh and new and actually quite female focused way and turned that into a bit of a business idea. And the first 12 months was very experimental. There was no um, precedent. There was no business model particularly to follow or to replicate. But within 12 months, I'd realised that this was certainly an idea that had some legs and I was able to turn it from a hobby into a full-time career. Right. So what was what were the, the kind of the original idea? What was the original idea with the, with the Fabulous Ladies Wine Society? It was really to provide wine information and to introduce people to new wines in a way that was interesting, fun and non-threatening. So again, like that conversation I was describing, by having a good chat with a girlfriend in a way that was non-intimidating, in a way that wasn't full of wine jargon or, um, you know, interesting wine terminology, that was just plain speaking 
and, um, you know, perhaps used references to everyday kind of pop culture rather than uh, very elitist sort of food and wine terms. Um, I, I, used, I, I loved being able to change people's minds about wine or get them to try something new. And so it was through that joy of just talking to my own friends and seeing them, their uh, journey sort of unfold during these conversations that I thought, I'm sure this must be bigger than just my circle. I'm sure I'm sure there's a need for this sort of communication, particularly focused at wine-loving women, to encourage and support and nurture their interest. So that's how it was born. And what was the what was it particular reason why you wanted to target uh, female uh, wine consumers in particular? Well, we're certainly not targeting all women, just like um, regular wine, can, you know, male-focused stuff doesn't focus on all men. But there's certainly a group who happen to be women, who happen to be interested in wine, who enjoy, um, you know, feminine focused or or female female style ways of talking together so when um men and women get together separately the conversation is different than when it's in mixed company it, it just is and so why not introduce wine into that conversation um and make it fun and uh, interesting and something where you can learn peer-to-peer um, did you do any kind of research? Did you get any sort of stats, figures, or was it largely sort of just gut feel about um, how the, uh, I guess, the male-female dynamic with wine was? Because um, the reason I ask is I remember when I was doing my master's degree in wine business, uh, we obviously were looking at consumer behaviour and, and household sort of makeup and and how – uh, and particularly in the context of different countries and different cultures, um, uh, the decision makers were quite different. And now, you know, in Australia, uh, typically they would say that the, the male is the decision maker about wine. Um, but it's really interesting that in a lot of the Asian countries, you know, new emerging wine markets, uh, the, the real decision makers as far as wine are female. Did you did you kind of look into that at all or was this just like yeah, this is what absolutely. I want to do? Yeah, No, I did. And, in fact, well, the research I've seen is actually um, – not quite what you've just said. <laughs> so, really? uh, okay. yeah. So in Australia, um, the the uh, the last stat I saw, and it's a bit old now, it's 2011 that the last major study was done, was that uh, 52% of all wine purchases in Australia were made by women. So, uh, with more than half of wine purchase being made by women, it was interesting for me to notice that most of the communications around wine didn't really have a focus. On the female consumer. Mm. So most of the voices, most of the um, uh, faces that we see who inform us about wine, who critique wine on our behalf, who give us wine recommendations, happen to be white, middle-aged or older men. Mm. <laughs> and so the number of faces and voices and opinions from women were very um, small and they're not they're not zero by any stretch of the imagination, but they're certainly not um, as common and as loud. And so I suspected that probably there was room in that environment to provide that kind of voice. When, you, when I think about that, kind of dichotomy of, um, you know, male faces and voices are being largely more dominant. I, I kind of think about the different elements of the wine industry uh, all the way through to um, communication and, and education. I think that to a large extent that's uh, the industry uh, is has historically had quite a heavy uh, bias towards males, uh, mm-hmm. like if you think about, um, you know, farming, production, uh, you know, winemaking, that kind of thing, um, sales to a certain extent. Probably one of the exceptions would be marketing. Uh, mm. I, my my impression is that marketing is still marketing communications is still is is quite um, dominant with with females, which is fantastic. Um, and then in terms of journalism. They're all fair, you know, a little bit more skewed towards males, which is something that has been changing. But do you think that that's, do you think that's fairly um, reflective of what you found, 
uh, or do you think do you think is is has um, I don't know affluence got anything to do with it? I don't think affluence has much to do with it. And yes, it certainly is very indicative of the wine industry at large. So uh, sadly, the stats that we have, um, which uh, was uh, a research paper done by um, Galbraith, who looked at the number of women participating in the wine industry, uh, he was able to demonstrate that in areas like winemaking and viticulture, only around 8 to 10% of the workforce in that area is female. And in areas like viticulture, it's actually in decline, which mm. is pretty much sadder still. What's really interesting is that when it comes to women entering the wine industry, they're going into uh, courses, winemaking viticulture courses in equal numbers okay. to men. Okay. But by the time they come out, they, where have they gone? <laughs> they're dropping out faster than anything we can almost imagine. And yet no one's actually paid any attention to this, hopefully until now. Mm. In terms of, uh, we can, uh, I'd like to come back to this a little bit later on, but as far as w when you were um, starting Fabulous uh, Ladies Wine Society, what form did you want it to take? Like, was it just a, a communication platform? Did you want it to be like educational, like running workshops and classes? Uh, was there like, did you kind of give people the opportunity to purchase wine as well? Yeah, look, it's all been very experimental and continues to be. So what I did do in that first 12 months was as I was developing an audience and a, and a membership base, I surveyed people to find out what they wanted. And what we overwhelmingly were told is that we want easy, fun events where people can be introduced to great wines. So the events program that we run is quite a significant part of what we do. They also wanted strong and reliable wine recommendations. So that's a lot of, of what, what we do as well. So we, I guess um, in a nutshell, what I've discovered that the Fabulous Ladies Wine Society does is we sort of put people in touch with great wines and great wineries and we don't actually sell any wine of our own. I don't think that that's what we're here to do. I think we're here to support the wineries that are already doing a great job and to provide a fantastic introduction um, between them and women who really love wine already. And initially, did you have uh, the intention of or did you prefer to kind of um, work with wine producers who had, you know, a pretty good track record as far as uh, female uh, involvement in in production side of things? Great question. So at first, no, because I think I was very naive at first and I didn't fully realise that um, that the wine industry really was very underrepresented by women at that stage. It's been quite a learning process uh, over that first year or two to, to fully recognise that there really aren't a lot of women in the industry at the winemaker, viticulture and owner-operator level. And so I didn't realise until probably 12 or 18 months in that actually giving them our support and prioritizing them could be a really important part of what we do. So it, it now quite obviously is a very important part of what we do, but I certainly didn't expect it to be. As I said, I, I felt quite naive on that front um, for that first sort of 12 to 18 months. Did you receive really positive feedback from uh, some of the members to say, oh, we, we actually really appreciate having the opportunity to be exposed to, uh, you know, more wines that have, you know, more of a, a feminine touch to them, shall we say? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's something to be said for uh, putting the sisterhood to work. So women supporting women is certainly something that's um you know, a cornerstone of, of how we've operated as a society for so many years, why couldn't that be applied to wine? So it's a, it's with real pleasure that um, I enjoy, you know, finding, uncovering, um, discovering or simply just putting in front uh, women who are making wine or producing wine to our audience who are already, you know, wine lovers who want to support them. And how did you um, start to uh, discover more um, really important um, and influential uh, female winemakers and wine communicators? How did you start to, to sort of develop that network yourself? Um, 
very gratefully, a lot of them came to me very early on and um, that was part of my education process, I think, was speaking to some of these women quite early on and for me to learn that in fact they were very underrepresented and didn't really have a platform or a voice or a network or um, somewhere where, you know, somebody was, I guess, speaking on their behalf or demonstrating to the world that they were there. I think unless voices are heard and faces are seen, it's very easy to be overlooked. And um, so certainly a lot of a lot of women in the industry were very gentle and very good to me in being able to approach me and educate me and, you know, let me know that this was something that we could potentially be doing and I'm very grateful to them for that. Um, and certainly um, our, when we did start to introduce or get behind or support more women in wine, it was certainly a very popular thing with our members and, and consumers. So straight away I realised that not only was this great for the women in the industry but it's certainly something that our members were really happy to see as well. Well, I guess the, the the benefit being that you could that that they could hear directly from the actual consumers themselves and and get that immediate feedback and and support and know yes, this is what's important to us, the consumer. Yeah, absolutely. And look, a lot of these a lot of women in the industry. Um, often shy away from getting up in front of consumers, uh, I guess, for some traditional businesses who uh, might be, uh, you know, operated by a couple or a family, very often, not always, but very often it's the men in the family that take those um, very front and centre roles. And so it's been really exciting for me to kind of get these very well-known often women in the industry who get up at one of my events, for example, and suddenly say I've never done this before <laughs> and you think really what but you've been in the industry for 20 years and you're so well known and everybody but they've never done that before yeah. they've they never kind of get the call up to go out and speak directly because it's always sort of one of those roles that falls to the men in the family yeah. so it's wonderful to kind of get them out of their comfort zone and suddenly they're happy to do two three four events and loving what what they get from it it's interesting that um, I think it's fantastic that uh, it's evolved into m like more like a, a, an agent of, of change, uh, of a social movement. Uh, I think that's just really fantastic. Uh, I know that um, in some of the literature that I've been reading, uh, which you've been sending out, which has been fantastic, uh, is that one of one of the big issues is um, like maternity leave and and mm -hmm. like one of the reasons that anecdotally is given uh, to pick a, a male applicant over a female applicant for a winemaking position is that, you know, they may be of a, a certain age that they're, they're looking at having kids and then they're going to be need, needing to take time off and stuff like that. Um, do you think that that plays into the possibly the reason that they haven't had the opportunity to go out and do that kind of thing as well because they're, they, might be, they might be mothers and the expectation is that they stay at home and look after the kids? Yeah, look, I think that societally that's something that women have faced in every industry for a long time. So certainly some of it's very historical in that way. Um, but I think that the personal biases are probably even broader than that most obvious one, that um, what ha tends to happen, and not just in the wine industry but certainly across industries, is that people recruit people who are similar to themselves and to whom they like. Right. And uh, unless you're made aware of that person, personal bias, it's very hard to recruit otherwise. So sometimes recruiters, even on a panel, uh, if that panel happens to be all men and they meet a uh, candidate who happens to say, yep, he loves golf on the weekend. Hey, they love golf on the weekend. Oh my goodness, suddenly he's hired and they're all playing golf on the weekend. It's a very a very common thing and, and, and very normal thing to have personal biases uh, when you're trying to recruit someone. So it's difficult for women when, for example, you're going into a business where um, men are recruiting you and they're not aware of personal biases. And a lot of uh, the wine industry operates as small businesses. And small businesses, of course, are trying to do a thousand things with very little budget. And putting in HR systems and procedures is not necessarily on, you know, the highest on the priority list. So experiencing something like um, hiring bias would be fairly typical to see in small business, not just in the wine industry, but across small business in general. Mm, absolutely.
Um, and part of the this movement was uh, to to launch the awards, um, the Women in Wine Awards. Um, it, what 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 sort of inspired you to to do something like that? Yeah, great question. So, again, hearing stories from a lot of these amazing women that I'd been working with for a couple of years, uh, there were many stories that um, really made me shudder, and they were stories that I was hearing regularly, and yet there was very little. Um, awareness or attention seemingly to be paid to them from the greater industry, certainly in terms of communications or awareness or, you know, general chit-chat amongst the industry. I wasn't seeing any awareness of this. Um, and the stories became more frequent and there was a lot of similarities between a lot of those stories. And I was lucky enough to attend a symposium over in California uh, called The Women of the Vine, which was, I guess, an American attempt to to galvanise women in the industry and provide a platform for them. And I was very inspired by that symposium and I thought this should be happening in Australia, but we really don't need another conference, well, not yet anyway, to talk about the problem. We know the problem is there. Let's do something to actually uh, recognise and reward those women who are already doing a great job in the industry. So the idea for the Australian Women in Wine Awards came from that. And then I thought, well, if we're going to do this, we obviously need some some good heavyweights on board from the industry. And I was very fortunate in that all the people uh, that I asked uh, to be on the advisory board for the awards said yes. And that was the clincher. It had to happen then. <laughs> And you you did uh, I, uh, I remember initially get uh, a little bit of um, blowback uh, unfortunately and people sort of saying why does there need to be an award you know de- dedicated just to females in the wine industry how do you respond to people who make you know fairly you know <laughs> <laughs> obtuse uh, observations like that. Oh, look, absolutely. It's terrifically sexist, the Australian Women in Wine Awards. It's horribly, absolutely sexist. And sadly, it needs to be because, look, we have hoped, we have prayed for a greater increase in female representation in the wine industry. But all of that hope, all of those fingers and toes crossed, it hasn't actually led to any Um, significant improvement. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, the limited amount of research that we do have suggests that in some of those very key areas like viticulture and winemaking, it's actually in decline. Mm. So why we're not all jumping up and down about this, I have no idea. Uh, I think we need to all be taking significant action to improve the situation. One very small way we can hopefully improve things is by making a lot of these women feel rewarded and um, feel significant and also sorry recognized recognized absolutely and an example exactly and then the more visible they are the more inspiring that is and the more normalizing that is for all the other women working in the industry and so it hopefully has that uh, knock-on effect of you know the award winners that's great it's it's hopefully rewarding and recognizing them but at the same time my very dear hope is that it's also providing inspiration um, and I guess a bit of a, a mentoring kind of idea for those women who are looking at entering the industry or who are just starting out in the industry or who even have been working in the industry for a really long time but feel like uh, they're, you know, they're pushing it all uphill all the time. So, you know, I'm hoping that that's the sort of impact that they'll have. And look, the dream of not just myself but the other fantastic members of our advisory board is that in the next few years, we hope that these awards won't be needed at all. Mm, Absolutely. Well, I think like it, it, it's quite telling that uh, I, I was uh, very fortunate to uh, to be able to help pour wines at the uh, Halliday Wine Awards dinner uh, here in Melbourne not long ago, and uh, I couldn't believe it. The, the first sort of female winemaker of the year, Sarah Crow, was announced, and I and I was like, it, it, it's terrible. Like this is 2016. No. How is it only? How the can first she be time? the first? Right? How can she be the first? We're already, you know, 16 years into the new millennium. And she's still our first. Yeah. So, yeah, I hope that that was a bit of a wake-up call to a few other people as well. But I think that, that they, they just, these are sort of 
things that need to be talked about. I think that that's always been one of the one of the strangest things I found with wine is that in spite of the fact that uh, more females consume wine, you would think, and and as you said, uh, as I incorrectly said, um, <laughs> uh, that uh, the more women are making decisions about wine. Why is it that the people who are making the wine, people who are behind the wine, uh, there's so few, there's so little representation of women? And I think that that's yeah, exactly. one of the great things that what you're doing is that, you know, you've it's evolved from inspiring wine consumers, female wine consumers, to be more confident and and have better understanding and in, in, in their choices about wine, um, but also inspiring more women to get involved with the wine industry. Well, thank you. We, we, I certainly hope that that's, that's what's happening and it'd be great to know that that is happening. Um, I mean, we put out um, a media release just last week from the Australian Women in Wine Awards saying that really we won't get any change. None of this will work unless the men step up too. Uh, it's definitely a community-wide issue and it's not just a women's issue and we certainly need all of our fantastic men in the industry to embrace it and, like you say, just to talk about it, just to have an awareness of it and to perhaps be looking at um, what they can do to, to affect change in their workplaces or their businesses or even just the way they talk and interact with their female colleagues. Absolutely. You know, and I think that, that what's missing out so much is the the influence. Uh, you know, if you have more diversity in terms of uh, input into the, the wines that we drink and consume, the better it is for everyone. If you're just getting a, a more narrow view about what you know, how we should make wine and how we should consume wine, you know that 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 just cuts off opportunities for the consumers at the end of the day. Absolutely, absolutely. So the more diverse we can make uh, the workforce in the wine industry, uh, the the better it is for everyone. Exactly. It's not just about um, women. Of course, it's all kinds of diversity. Mm. Well, look, you know, speaking for myself, um, and it possibly is partly a reflection on myself as well, but I, I know that it has been a, a bit challenging for myself um, finding guests to be on the podcast who are women, um, and I'm really excited that uh, more recently I've been doing a much better job uh, and had some fantastic uh, female winemakers and wine communicators uh, and just like yourself. Oh, thanks, James, and a great job. I mean, um, again, sometimes it is hard to for women to speak up. Um, I mean, we did a Women in Wine survey, Australia's first ever Women in Wine survey earlier this year, and what we found in that survey was some pretty damning statistics. But one that always stands out for me is that um, 67%, that is two out of every three women working in the wine community or wine industry, have reported that they've experienced sexist behaviour in their workplace. So, I can understand that um, having had those sorts of experiences, often it makes it difficult for women to want to speak up or to put themselves forward because sometimes the recriminations to their careers, their career advancement um, can be um, quite detrimental. Uh, I think Karina Wright did a brilliant speech at Wine Day Out earlier this year in Adelaide where you know she pretty much said even she, somebody confident and um, understanding of these issues, finds it really hard to, or has found it really hard in the past to speak up and to really say what's needed because we often get labelled, you know, that girl, that yeah. difficult girl. Yeah. Um, and rather than having our issues listened to, we become just another, you know, bit of trouble. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, it can be hard for us to believe in ourselves when nobody has listened to us for so long. And I think that, like, um, the, the issues that are facing the, the wine industry uh, can also be uh, very applicable as far as hospitality, you know, the, the, the real lack of um, f very, um, uh, like, f female sommeliers, like, who are really heavily promoted and given opportunities, very limited in my opinion, um, mm -hmm. you know, wine communicators and, and, and wine writers, you, you know, they're not promoted as much as, as men are and I, I think that that's a, that's a real shame. Absolutely. And you know, so much of it is just very subtle, just day-to-day -day decisions about who we'll talk about, um, who we'll put, we'll put up for an award, who we'll nominate, who we'll promote. 
these are very day-to-day decisions. It's not like everybody gets together in a big boardroom once a year and just, you know, decides, right, we're just going to hold women back here. It's all a very subtle, very day-to-day, very insignificant seemingly decisions that are made um, that has a very cumulative effect. But change can only come from awareness and I think that that's something that yourself and uh, the, the, the board are, are doing a fantastic job of is making people aware of the situation because that's the only way that people can understand what, how we can change. Oh, I'm so thrilled to hear you say that because I 100% agree. I think if nothing else, if these awards do nothing else, I just want everybody to be talking about it because, again, just like you summed up so beautifully there, an awareness is the key to everything. Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, thank you very much uh, for for making this time, Uh, Jane. uh, I really do appreciate it and I think you're doing an amazing job uh, and uh, I'm sure everyone, hopefully everyone will agree with me. Um, Jane, what's (laughs) the... I don't know about everyone, Jane, but thank you. If they make it vocal, then there's something wrong. (laughs) And look, can I take this very quick chance to say that um, entries for the Australian Women in Wine Awards are open until the 4th of October and it'd be great for uh, men and women in the industry to nominate great women who are doing amazing things there's six categories open this year Um, so plenty of opportunities to nominate the women in your business or your peers and colleagues and each of those nominees has to complete their own entry form so nominating just takes a few seconds yeah, and you're know, putting them on the spot so they have to, as you say, like some of them have such difficulty to talk about themselves. I know. Look, it's a, we're calling it a tap on the shoulder. You know, <laughs> you're not dating someone, you're giving them a little tap on the shoulder to say, hey, we think you're worth it. And that can go such a long way to, to, some, to building somebody's confidence and to giving them the courage to sit down, to talk about themselves and to put their hat in the ring. Absolutely. So, uh, if you wouldn't mind sharing the uh, the uh, addresses, the web, web websites, uh, and also so, any social media accounts. Absolutely. So, womeninwineawards.com.au is where it's all at for the Australian Women in Wine Awards. And then, of course, if you are fabulous and a woman and love wine, you need to head to the Fabulous Ladies Wine Society, which is fabulousladieswinesociety.com. We're also hugely active on Facebook uh, and Instagram, so you can come and follow us there too. And if you're a woman in wine, we also have a really active Australian Women in Wine Facebook page, so come and join that. Yeah, and, and, and keep the conversation going, guys. Absolutely. Men and women, we all have to embrace this. And I'm so excited to be able to be invited on, you know, a fantastic podcast like this one, James. Thanks for all you're doing and raising the awareness because everything helps. Uh, it's my sincere pleasure. And I, 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 that's the thing. I just I love talking about wine. And I think that all, everything, everything we can talk about of wine is, is great. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. And as always, thank you guys for listening to another episode of The Vincast. I have been James Gasbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino, and you can find me on social media. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Intrepid Wino, and the podcast is also on Twitter at The Vincast. Head to my Facebook page, hit that like button, and check out some of my my links and photos that I've shared. Uh, And also, as I mentioned, I have a YouTube channel, Intrepid Wino. Uh, Please subscribe to that and check out some of the videos, including my Let's Taste uh, wine tasting series and also my uh, experiences with the Intrepid Winemaking uh, project for 2016. If you'd like to subscribe to the podcast, you can do it on a number of different platforms, including iTunes, Player FM, Stitcher, uh, Podbean. Subscribing means you get uh, the newest episode as soon as it, as soon as it becomes available, uh, and you can also access the uh, full catalogue of episodes. Uh, I'd love for you to leave a rating and review. As I mentioned, uh, you can win one of uh, the remaining beautiful Yarra Valley wine region maps from Linus Wilson at uh, Wines and Makers. Uh, Simply just uh, mention which was your favorite episode of the podcast and then get in contact with me. Uh, Looking forward to uh, many more episodes coming up, uh, including all those great episodes I'm sure I'll record at the Alternative Varieties Wine Show in Mildura. Uh, But until then, bye. Bye.